Some of our episodes are overviews, and some of them are super practical. This one is super practical. I sat there with a pen, jotting down notes, and I think you should do the same. We were privileged to have Ned Schoenfeld, a business consultant based in the five towns. He works with businesses, individuals. He's behind the Parnassa Exchange. Well, he'll tell you all about them. But we wanted to know what are high-paying jobs and how do you find them? He spoke about skills you need, whether you're just starting out or you've been working for 30 years. It was super insightful. Great episode. I think we'll have Ned Schoenfeld back many more times. Produced by Living Lachaim. More and more subscribers on YouTube. Thank you. Watch our other videos there. Subscribe. Apple, Spotify, Unamify. We're on there. And enjoy the episode. Being a Jew? Awesome. Managing personal finances? Not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Another episode of Kosher Money. Today we got Ned Schoenfeld in the house to discuss jobs. Everyone wants a good job. Everyone wants a high-paying job. Ned, what would you say is a high-paying job? I think, actually, it's easier to answer what are low-paying jobs and to define them by category. So that way you know what to avoid if you're trying to get a high-paying job. What are those low-paying jobs? So if you go into an office and you see somebody sitting at reception, that's probably not a good job to get. If someone says, oh, we have a great desk sitting in a cubicle all day long, you're going to be doing office work, that's not going to be a good-paying job. And ultimately, if they, let's say, promote you to sit at the front desk and to help people lining up or they let you work the cash register, that's not going to be a good-paying job. So all of those kind of jobs, no matter what they tell you, your career path is just going to be from cashier to being the senior cashier or from being the guy in the smaller cubicle to being the guy in the larger cubicle. Those tend to not be good jobs. Is that, skill, is that because the skills involved are easy for anyone to, to attain? Or you don't need high-level skills for that? For sure, it's part of that. And also, if you take a look, what is the career path for a job like that? If you are good at helping customers find shirts, what's going to be the promotion? Now they'll let you be in charge of helping them find pants. You know, So there's, there's really no career path in it. You want to find a job where you can see that you're always going to be able to be adding more and more value to the customer. So... I'll give you an example of good jobs. If mm. you want to sell something, selling almost anything is going to be better paying than being the customer service person or the receptionist or the office worker who's dealing with the transaction that just happened or processing a refund or something like that. So you're out selling. You're better off because if you're ultimately, let's say, you're the one selling shirts to people, eventually you could own a shirt store. Or eventually you could become a commission salesperson. You could be selling shirts to other stores. Or you could be selling all across the country. You could be selling online. You could become, I don't know, one of the big companies that's doing clothing online or something. So there's, you could see there's going to be a career path if you're selling. So for sure, selling is always a good thing. Next kind of thing is anything that involves any kind of technical skill. And by that, I don't even mean technology. But if you have bookkeeping skills, if you have accounting skills, if you take the time to learn about insurance and how to help people making insurance decisions, if you learn anything about healthcare or nursing homes, anything that involves some kind of 
time that you had to invest to acquire a set of knowledge, those jobs right away are going to pay more right out of the gate. And for sure, they're going to offer a career path. If you start off in real estate, everyone knows that in real estate, you start off and you know so little at the beginning, but after a few years, you have a tremendous understanding of what's going on in the market. And that could be whether you're doing construction or sales or property sourcing, anything, you're going to pick up a set of skills. Once you pick up that set of skills, that technical knowledge, that's going to become more valuable and that's going to lead to increasing compensation. So that's very interesting. So for the listening audience, I'm taking notes already because I have uh, so many questions about things you've just said. So let's start with selling. There are those that are natural sellers. They're, they're good salesmen, good saleswomen. For someone that is not so-called good at sales, is that something that they can get good at through experience, practice, reading books, listening to interviews, etc.? Sure, I'll tell you for myself. I took a career exam, a test when I was in high school, and they said, like, let's see what your aptitudes are for different careers. Any question that smelled even remotely like selling, I said, no, 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 no. The thought of me sitting in front of someone and trying to sell them something, and in my mind, I had the idea of like being like a car salesman or maybe a cold caller. It seemed just so, I could never do that kind of thing. But in reality, everything you do in life is selling. If you want to get a job, you are selling yourself. So the company wants to invest in you, wants to buy you, right? So everything is selling. I would say, like, really, for a person who hates selling, and I do, I don't like selling, I was promoted once to the head of sales of a company only because I like speaking to people and figuring out what's hurting them or what's their problem and figuring out how maybe I could help them. And someone said, don't you realize you're selling them a solution? And I was like, oh, I never even realized that. Right. So if you like, if you like helping other people... There you go. That's an opportunity to get into selling. Selling doesn't have to be, hey, you want to buy this? It doesn't have right, to be right, that, right? right. It, it can be more about telling you about what your needs are for a nursing home for your grandparents or tell me about, you know, so that person who's saying tell me about, they are selling to you and they're doing it in a very nice way. They are facilitating a solution for you, but they are selling and you could be doing that too. Which is interesting because I like helping people, but I don't like selling. So maybe I'm approaching my meetings incorrectly in that stop thinking about the end product and shoving it down their throat. I should think about, hey, where do they have voids? Where do they have needs that I can potentially help them and focus more on that? And then by means, I'll actually be selling my product, which is very interesting. Absolutely. Um, and then let's talk about the technical skills. So. What you're saying is if someone's starting out, they're much and, – and they don't know anything, right? You know, they don't know how to run the register. They'd have to learn that, and they don't know anything about real estate. It's okay in the beginning not to – right? It's not realistic to get that high-paying job because you have to learn somewhere. So if you're going to learn somewhere, do it in the place where there's actually potential, where you can lay some sort of foundation, right? If you're going to learn about real estate, those first few years – you're going to have to learn about the cash register anyway. You're going to have to learn all the produce codes, et cetera. So do it in a way where you can actually see a path towards a high-paying job. Is that right? Yes, definitely. And you're touching on something else which is so important. The best way to learn anything is through apprenticeship. For a from audience, 
I'm assuming you have at least some from listeners here. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so for a from audience, people who are in yeshiva, the day you showed up at yeshiva for the first time in your life or a masifta and you cracked open a gemara or the first time if you're a woman and your mora said to you, we're going to learn chumash today and they had you open up the chumash, you knew nothing right? And you were doing your best to figure out what we're talking about, what's going on. But now if you look back on it, you have acquired so many skills over the year. The way you were being taught, that's an apprenticeship. The more time that someone invests in you teaching you the ropes and the more attentive you are to picking up those skills, the more you're going to end up with at the end. It's the same thing with any career, is if you can find someone who's already gone through and put in their 10, 20, 30 years in something, they have tremendous expertise. They have a seichel about it that you can acquire by just following them around. Even if you're going to get paid a little bit of money at the beginning, it's going to pay off very handsomely for you at the end. Right at the beginning, when you start learning, your parents are paying for your schooling. It's costing money for you to acquire that knowledge. But by the time you're an adult, you're able to acquire by yourself. You're able to learn by yourself. You're able to gain knowledge by yourself. The same thing happens in a career. At the beginning, you're paying your dues. You're getting a a lower salary, but you're going to gain tremendous insight into how something is going to become profitable for you. So Mm -hmm. invest those early years because it is going to pay off very big. So how does college fit into there, right? Is that a knock on college? Is that something? Would you recommend people seek out some sort of apprenticeship during their college years? Because those, those are valuable years. If you're going to put that into so-called education, school education, you're missing out on years where you could acquire information in a low-paying job that could be some sort of foundation. Thereby, when you leave school, you're much better off than your peers who didn't allocate any time towards learning from an apprentice? It's a good question. Maybe I'll give kind of two examples of maybe how much college you need. So for many jobs, if you're, if it's going to be, you're going to acquire apprenticeship type skills, and that's all you need, you probably don't need college. For some people, a certain amount of college is very beneficial, because if they didn't learn how to write really well or speak really well the way you are doing very well right now into your microphone. Score. I hope my mother's listening. (laughs) So if if you haven't picked up those skills, college can teach you those things. They're going to teach you how to form your thoughts into an organized way and get them down on paper and then to articulate them verbally, certainly in writing. That's a very, very big plus for someone. If you weren't that good in, let's say, business math, college can give you the skills to learn business math so you can be proficient in those things. They can teach you how a spreadsheet works and what its purpose is and how to form a business plan, things like that. College is very good. Maybe one step further, certain careers require a certain level of either educational or certification requirements. If you want to be a CPA, you're going to need to have a degree in accounting, and you're going to need to pass the CPA exam. If you want to sell insurance, you may not need a college degree, but you're going to have to pass various insurance exams and become certified by at least one state in the United States. So 
college can help you towards those professional certifications if you want to be in one of those fields where it's required. If you want to be in healthcare administration, you need a certain amount of education, you need a degree, you need certification. So there are definitely some careers that will require it, but there are many, many, many careers out there that aren't going to require that, and they're going to require more that you pick up good apprenticeship skills and certainly be able to be a good communicator and know how to write down your thoughts and speak your thoughts. So here's a stat. It says that, and we're talking about jobs and finances, it says more than 53% of adults say thinking about their financial situation makes them anxious. 44% of adults say discussing their finances is stressful. When we talk about the early years of someone going into a certain industry or career, that's that's a pivotal decision that can sort of dictate. And there are people that change careers in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, but ultimately where they go in the beginning is where they tend to stay. This decision is a critical one, right? For sure it's a critical one. But again, I think the only really important things to decide at the beginning is pick something that you like, that you have an interest in, and pick something in where we spoke at the beginning that it is not a dead end. And if you're not sure, if you're unsure, ask someone for advice. When we look at which industries Orthodox Jews are playing in, right, there's, I mean, there's a handful, but there, there's a common theme. You'll see nursing homes, you'll see real estate, you have Amazon buyers now, You'll have medical doctors. Why is it that Orthodox Jews are not, you know, m- you know, overseeing a Target store, or you know, you don't walk in and be like, "Hey, you work here?" Because no, no Orthodox Jews work in such a location. Is it because the cost of living is so high? How do you uh, look at that? I mean, honestly, certainly the jobs you just rattled off, you see many from people in those types of jobs or careers, but I meet people every day. I meet someone who's in a job that I said, oh, see, I guess we're doing that job too. So I just met you. Look what you're doing, right? And I assume you're paying your bills well enough to be sitting here with these expensive microphones and cameras. So, I mean, I didn't know that was a a job that a firm person can do. I meet people that are doctors. They are lawyers. They are accountants. They are bookkeepers. They run stores. I meet plenty of people who run stores. They are buyers for big stores. They work for Google. They work for Facebook. Um, Are you seeing coders? A lot of people in coding? I meet people in coding, but I meet people also in relationship management and sales. Like a you know, a big thing for for Facebook and Google is to try to get more businesses to sign up. LinkedIn. LinkedIn has a professional staff of people who are selling businesses on the idea of doing all their recruiting on LinkedIn. There's plenty of from people in those jobs that are selling to businesses and are advising businesses on the best ways to use any of those platforms to grow their own businesses. So I, I wouldn't say that... Um, that those are the the careers you rattled off are the only ones for from Jews. I, I every day I meet. Oh, I guess there's another career that from Jews can do. 
the most important thing is your aspiration can't be, I want to be in charge of aisle six in the Target store, but you could be a buyer for Target. Mm -hmm. You could be someone who works in Target corporate and is helping them decide where to open the next location. You could be someone who's helping Target figure out what is going to be the human resources process for all Target employees. There are great jobs to get at Target. It's just not going to be the aisle six job. So finding jobs. And I know you're involved in the Parnassa Exchange. For the listening audience, tell them what is the Parnassa Exchange and what you hope to accomplish with that. Sure. Parnassa Exchange is kind of like a job board, but we have a bit of a difference. Our idea is to become more like a stock exchange for all the other job boards. Every job board ends up with jobs they can't fill or for people who are looking for jobs and can't find a job. When we've been speaking to the broader Jewish community in the United States and actually in Israel and Canada and parts of Europe as well, we've found that there would be a big advantage in connecting all of the communities together. So that way, in an, let's say an example, we have a chemist who lives in Idaho and he can't find any jobs as a chemist, but maybe there's a great chemist job in Baltimore, but they're never gonna find each other. So our idea is if you get the, the Chesed organization that's in California and Idaho and Chicago and Miami and New York and New Jersey and Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim and everyone's all sharing their jobs and the people who are searching for jobs and we can get that all into one big database, that makes it very easy to fulfill more people's needs where we couldn't make matches before because we now have a much larger pool and we're going to find that there is someone in LA who could help your business grow and there is someone in New York who can help a company in Seattle grow and we're going to be able to do that if we're all on a platform together. So we decided to build Parnas Exchange. We started at the uh, in the midst of COVID to build a platform that would allow other organizations to onboard. They could keep their current process going, whatever right. they're doing today, but to share the data with us behind the scenes and then decide how much they want to share with others. So, for example, if we have poor Ruvain, who's still out of work in Los Angeles, the Chesed organization in Los Angeles can add Ruvain to the broader pool, or Ruvain himself can say, I need to see the broader pool of jobs. And likewise, if we have an employer in Detroit that cannot find anyone to fill their role, they can say, hey, can we show this job to more Jewish communities across the United States or the world so they can see this and maybe I can find the talent that way. And we give both sides the ability to search for talent. We give people who are looking for jobs the ability to search for places where their skills might work. Mm -hmm. And we give people who are hiring the ability to search through the talent pool while still not sharing any information unless you want to share it. So someone might be able to identify that you're the right person, but mm -hmm. they can't see your name until you opt in and say, gotcha. sure, you can see me. So we protect everyone's privacy while also allowing everyone to share the same way the stock exchange does with a trade. We don't know who bought the shares that I sold or who I bought them from, but we know ultimately the stock exchange matches buyers and sellers. That's the same thing we want right. to do for jobs. I feel like Ruvain always gets picked on. Poor Ruvain. Poor Ruvain. Right? He's, either he's killing, always out of work. Yeah, he's either out of work or he's killing Shimon. So. Um, but that's very interesting. So hopefully that will help a lot of people. And in a post-COVID world, you do have more remote options, right? People, especially large companies, are very open to the idea of, oh, you're not coming into a nine to five. You'll still get the job done. 
have you seen a dramatic change in in how companies hire more open to being remote? Yes, for sure. I see many more opportunities now where a company is willing to accept a remote employee. I also see now the other side where employees are saying, I got to finally get out of my house. I want to be able to go to an office. Uh And so they're looking for places where even if they're a remote worker, maybe other remote workers can all gather together and be in some kind of office. We know of a company that's opening up a satellite office location just so remote workers can go in a few days a week so they can meet other remote workers. Oh, really? The um, social interaction yes, is so important. Because, pe- because people want the face-to-face every once in a while. But, right. you're, but you're very right. There are so many jobs now that can really be 80, 90, 100% remote. And COVID did teach the world where maybe some businesses realized that earlier. Now, so many more businesses realize that that might be a way to work. And you even see that in retail today where people are saying... I'm happy for you to sell my product and be a remote salesperson, and you'll interact with people over phone or video or something and advise them, and maybe they'll buy my product. And, you know, you've never been to my store or my business location, whatever, but you are helping me sell my product. Interesting. Interesting. And and you could think about it in a way that if you move to an out-of-town, an Orthodox Jew moving to an out-of-town, the cost of living has been brought down, but the potential earnings can stay the same, right? We spoke with um, Ramosha Howard over at the OU. There's so many out-of-town communities, and that has been the discussion on this podcast where people have reached out to me and they said, really, is out-of-town a, a, a possibility? Like, should I be entertaining this? And I think, and, and you see that with Florida. I mean, I have friends that are moving down there, Boca, Hollywood, et cetera, where our parents' generation wouldn't have ever considered it and they're keeping their jobs. All their, you know, they said whatever I'm doing from my back office in my house, I could be doing down in Florida. You know, I don't think two years ago people would have been as open-minded to shifting around the way they are. So that's very interesting. Technology today versus where it was 20, 30 years ago. It's opened up so many new jobs, so many new roles. Um, when people hear technology, they think back-end coding, etc. Is that are all technology jobs coding or there's more here and there's real good jobs money to make in in other roles so for sure there are definitely coding type roles if you have an interest in being a web developer or a coder a back-end developer or anything like that you know today there are endless jobs and the pay is great so that's for sure but today everything we do runs on technology try to think there are, there's almost no job today that functions without technology. And if we go back to that remote work, if you're going to be a remote worker, you're going to have remote telecoms, you're going to have remote video, you're going to have conferencing, all of those tools, right? I know people who sell for Zoom. They help businesses get on Zoom. There are people who do that from Microsoft Teams. So those jobs, you don't know You don't need to know a single thing technically about how Zoom works or how Teams, Microsoft Teams works, but you know for sure that you could 
teach someone how to use it. You could sell them on purchasing it. You could provide a value-added service and teach them how to configure it because there are plenty of people who know how to flip the switches, set things up, get you ready to use it that are not really technical people because you know you've done that for yourself probably in many cases. Maybe you are that one person in your family that's always driving over to grandma's to help her get set up with her laptop. If you can do that today, there's a career in that, and you could work for any one of these companies or any of the new startups in the Froom community mm -hmm. helping people get on with telehealth or the conferencing services or selling organizations, insurance companies. Everyone is relying on a technology backbone. So when it comes to education, would you want to see the schools colleges focusing a little bit less on complex mathematics, Shakespeare, and helping people with Microsoft Office, accounting, personal finances, critical skills that you need to a, run your personal finances and for business owners, their businesses. So I'll tell you for myself, I love learning. So I am, I don't want to say I am as interested always, but I do enjoy learning some Shakespeare because it's great to know who Hamlet was and what a great English play is. That doesn't necessarily that mean I want to... That sounds more leisurely, you know? It's yeah, not... sure, but I mean, it, it's, it's knowledge for knowledge's sake. And, okay. and you might find out that even though you're not going to learn the art of negotiation from Hamlet, because I do believe he killed his relatives, it's probably not the best way <laughs> not to ideal, negotiate. No. No. Um, but you might learn something from it. So, so certainly a lot of traditional university is those kinds of disciplines, a liberal arts education that teaches you more about, let's say, Western society and gives you that kind of background. You don't, probably don't need a lot of that for work, but what you do want to learn, you might learn in that Shakespeare class how to write a great essay, and learning how to write is incredibly important. Business writing is very important. I'll tell you, you know, I volunteer a lot of my time helping people with their careers, and people will send me their resumes, and they'll say, you know, I've been trying for the last six months to get a job, and no one will even interview me, and I'll read the first two lines of their resume, and there will be five or six typos. And so you say, like, no wonder nobody noticed and nobody told you and you didn't notice that you're misspelling words like in your first sentence and you write things like, I'm gonna get a job, G-O-N-N-A. Gonna is not a word, right? And if you write things like that on a resume, your, res your resume is going to be rejected flat out. It won't even pass the technology screens that are filtering out resumes. They're going to say just not the kind of person we would want to hire. So if you want a job, you do need to learn how to write. And that is a very underrated skill in a lot of from communities. You have to learn how to do that. Writing is a very important skill. You don't have to learn that in college, but you have to learn it somewhere. You have to make sure that if you're doing a resume for yourself, that you do not have typographical errors. You do not have grammatical errors. You express yourself clearly. If you read someone's uh, resume and it sounds the way people talk in the street and it says so yeah so like I was working at like this kind of company that was like selling stuff and I was like helping them do it are you going to hire a person no, like that you're no. going to say I don't even know what they did they 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 said a lot of words but they didn't say a thing mm -hmm. right there's a reason why Torah is so terse and Gemara is so terse and the reason why it's terse is because it wants to communicate a point as efficiently as possible when you read something like I just rattled off like that, 
it's anything but that, right? It has all the words that don't tell you a thing, and it's not clear. So people have to learn how to write. People have to learn how to speak, and people have to learn basic business math skills. You have to know what's 5% of 100, and you have to know how I'm going to figure out a profit margin on something, and you have to know how am I going to be able to absorb my expenses. And when you were mentioning earlier that people are so stressed about their financial lives, Mm -hmm. how many people do you think spend any time at all making a list of what all their expenses are in the month and figuring out you know, what they need to make things work, mm-hmm. right? We know for sure that you don't obsess about how much money you, you have in the bank. Hashem will give you more. But certainly you need to know what your expenses are. One of the reasons that we overflow our coasts on Havdalah is because we want to make sure that we can live inside the coasts and everything that overflows is for everybody else, right? That's what we give back to our communities. But you have to know how big your coast is or else you don't know how much wine to pour to make it overflow. So you have to understand enough about business math to know what your monthly nut is to crack, and then you know where to go and ask for help or where you're going to need to cut back or where you're going to need to earn more. Love it. Love it. So very often when it comes to couples, right, that that they're working, some say, or if the husband's the breadwinner and the wife is at home, the cost of childcare will offset whatever revenues she's bringing into the marriage. Is it not even worth discussing between a couple or is there a legitimate way to bring in an extra income that won't be chewed up by the cost of childcare? So I think there's a two-part answer there. So the first thing is I think if a woman does not want to spend her entire day in the house taking care of the children and she needs an opportunity to express herself by doing some kind of work, that can be the right thing for a lot of people. And even if economically it's a wash, It could be a good thing, just mental health-wise, and good for the marriage for a wife to be able to do that. If she doesn't want to, that's also fine. I'll also go back to what I said earlier, though, is the best thing then for that Rebbitson who wants to get a job is to find something that is going to pay better than those base wages. If she gets a job as a receptionist, she's not going to get paid all that well. We know that, right? We said that earlier, Mm -hmm. and there's no career progression. If you get a job... Um, working at um, the desk, uh, I don't know, of, uh, of an office uh, or a, doc- a medical practice or mm-hmm. something. So it pays okay, but there's no career path in it. So you can certainly do those jobs for a while, and they're great jobs to get back in the workforce, and they're very good for that mental health we talked about because you're going to meet and interact with a lot of people, and you're helping other people, mm-hmm. so there's wonderful aspects to it. But if you're trying to do it, to bring in extra money, you need to figure out how to have one of those other jobs that's going to ultimately pay better, even if you have to invest a year or two where the pay is not great. But you know, in year three, it's going to pay really well. I'll just mention for a second about selling insurance, because I recently helped a couple of people get into this who were completely disconnected from that as a profession. Mm -hmm. So we know today that an enormous number of Americans every year are going on to Medicare. The Medicare uh, process is very complicated in this country because in addition to Medicare, people have supplemental insurance and Medicare Advantage plans and pharma plans and 
There's all kinds of other things that someone needs to consider when they become eligible for Medicare. People who are selling insurance to that space, they are advising all of those consumers on what are the right choices for them. In the process, you get paid a pretty big commission as the one who advised someone and signed them up for one of those other kind of plans. Who are you getting paid by? Who's paying that commission? The the carrier. So Medicare doesn't pay anything because Medicare is the government. But a Medicare <laughs> supplemental plan, the supplemental plan comes from um, an insurance carrier, you know, Aetna or Cigna or United Healthcare or whatever. The Advantage plans come from those carriers also. And they are paying commission to you for helping to bring them a new customer, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz, who are now on Medicare. So in that transaction... The one who helped them, the broker, that's you, you received a commission for that. In the first year, maybe, doing that business, maybe you'll earn $30,000, $40,000 a year. But by year three, the typical person selling that, if they're not doing a good job, earns $70,000 a year. If they're doing a good job, they're earning over $80,000 a year. And by year five, they're earning a six-figure salary. I know a couple a nice Jewish couple. Mm -hmm. They started off doing this eight years ago. Their combined income, the husband and wife, they're each doing this. Their combined income is over $500,000 a year. And all they are doing are speaking to people all day long and advising them about insurance. And they're helping lots of people. And it's a very friendly conversation. It's not a high pressure sale. It's a very, it's a conversation like this, like you and I are having. But they are earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year by after eight years of time invested, a half a million dollars a year, and that money goes on really for a very long period of time because every year when those people renew, the insurance company thanks you again by sending you another commission check. Ongoing commission. So every year you're getting the money on your prior year sales plus any new sales you're making. So you can see how that's going to be ultimately a fantastic way to earn money. And insurance is not the only market that works like that. There are many, many places where you can help someone find a solution to a problem they have where someone is paying you a commission or a bonus or whatever, and those things accrue over time, and the money gets very significant. And to do those jobs, one of those two people, the husband and wife, one of them went to college, the other one did not. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take anything about a college education, but it takes patience and understanding and certainly knowledge of the insurance industry and a certification, which they both did, and then putting in a few years of lower pay to have a really big payoff. Give us another job. The audience is listening. They have their pen in their hand. They're like, okay, commissions on insurance consulting, over $500,000 after eight years. What are other jobs people should. So I'll tell you another job which sounds very technical, but in the end I think is not so technical. Go for it. There's There's a job called business analyst. A business analyst is someone who writes down what a user is going to need for technology and then hands that off to developers who are actually going to build that platform. In order to be able to do that job, you need to spend some time understanding what the user does and writing down everything that they do, and then organizing those thoughts into the equivalent of a great essay that describes, in essentially a story, what the user does. So you write, first the user logs in. After the user logs in, 
they're going to select one of these three items. After they select one of those items, a new screen will appear, and that will give them a choice of this and this and this. And that's what a business analyst is doing. You don't need to be technical to do that job, but you do need to express yourself well in writing. Mm -hmm. The more and more time you put into that job, the more and more it pays. Maybe a starting business analyst might get fifty or $60,000 a year, but an experienced business analyst in either the financial industry or the insurance industry or the healthcare industry can bet, get paid a quarter of a million dollars a year because it, they want people who are really great at expressing what users do and can lay that out in the best possible way so coders get it right the first time. And if they don't get it right, that's where it gets expensive for these of companies. Of course. So it's well worth it paying someone to do that job. And all you have to be good at then is understanding what people do and writing it down on paper. Is a certification required? No certification required schooling? for that job. Schooling? No schooling required, really. You just have to be really good at listening and translating what people say into something clear on paper. And of course, you're going to learn. Again, it's a, it's a great job to do with other people who have done it before, because they're going to show you tricks and techniques along the way that are going to make you better at it. But that's another great job where it ultimately leads to fantastic pay. And ultimately, if you can manage several analysts doing that job, the pay goes up from right. there. There are, there are plenty of people in technology who are really non-technical, but they get paid very well because they are good at expressing themselves on paper and with others in a room to explain what needs to be done. So how do you get started? If I want to become a business analyst, give it all up and be, do that, is that just Googling how to become a business you, you, analyst? You can take courses in it. There are courses. There are online courses. Um, I believe there's some Chesed organizations, actually, who provide free training in those kinds of fields. And there are many companies. If you're working at a company today, I'm sure there are business analysts. If it's a company of any size, there are people who do that kind of role internally. Go and spend some time with them and see what they do and see if it's something you can do. Today, the world is screaming for people with those kinds of talents because there's so much new technology being built. Uh, I was on the phone last week with someone who is uh, on a board that organizes Israeli venture capital companies, a lot of tech companies. They have 17,000 open jobs, they told me, that they can't fill right now because there's not enough people who can be analysts, salespeople, customer service people, and of course some coders too. But there are plenty of jobs that are really not so technical, but it requires that you probably put in a little bit of time doing apprenticeship and learning and understanding the skill, and then you have a career. Very interesting. I, I, you know, if you don't have these conversations, you don't know about these gigs, but once you, the people listening, if they hear this, it sort of opens their mind and says, hey, maybe there is something more out there. Very cool. I noticed that going through school, the, the kids that didn't necessarily perform well in their academics, went off to become entrepreneurs, start their own businesses, and then the smart geeks or the nerds are the ones working for those folks. Um, why is that, right? I'm, I'm imagining, and by the way, these folks that went off aren't good writers. They're not the best at math, but they're running really solid businesses. Um, why, why, why do we see that theme? Or, you know, you also see with these, you know, the Bill Gates of the world or Mark Zuckerberg or people that have dropped out of college. I think Zuckerberg did. But 
you don't necessarily need to go to college to make it big. So in both those cases, we're dealing with Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. We're dealing with incredibly intelligent people. Um, and they not only were very bright technically, but they also could foresee whole industries and markets before they existed. So the fact that they dropped out of college is really, I don't think it's, I don't think that's like saying step number one, drop out of college. You know, I don't think that's their key to success. Um, but certainly what we do see with entrepreneurs, an entrepreneur tends to be successful when they see an opportunity that's not being served by anyone else or not being served well by others. I was talking maybe two weeks ago with um, uh, two young Jewish guys who started a furniture, an online furniture company. They have grown over the past four or five years to a $70 million a year business. And they were calling up asking for advice. They said, hey, we don't know anything about running a business, but we could really use some help. So I said, you don't know how to run a business? You're earning $70 million a year, right? And so they said, yeah, but we don't really understand accounting. We don't know how to recruit. We don't know whatever. They said, we did see, though, we saw five years ago that there was this opportunity in the market that was not being served. We came up with a great set of furniture products uh, at, a, at the right price, and we've been selling really well, okay? So certainly for the idea and to get going with a business, you may not need so many of those skills, but even they now, they realize if they want to grow that business or maybe keep that business where they've gotten it to and not be picked off by competitors or not miss some kind of big shift in the market, now they realize they need all that expertise. So the expertise is never going to hurt you, but yes, for sure, a good idea is a good idea. It's great to try to test those ideas out first before you invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in them, mm -hmm. because nobody wants to have a big loss like that. But if you can start off small and test out an idea and it seems to work, great. I met a young lady, I think maybe she's two years out of seminary, and she has a business designing um, art for homes. And she was doing it for herself as a, as a hobby, and she posted a picture of it online. Somebody saw it and said, can you make one for me? And then somebody else said, can you make one for me? And now that's become her parnasa. She never went on to college. And she, again, was asking, where can she acquire some extra business skills now? Because now she realizes all of a sudden she's in a business. But she had an idea, and she was doing something she loved. It became a business. But she didn't go first and spend $250,000 on a studio and hire a bunch of designers and buy a lot of expensive equipment and then find out, like, oh, gosh, it's not that good a business. Right. First, you start off small. You test it out. But if you have an idea, give it a shot. Amazing. Yeah, you do find people running to make a beautiful website before they have an actual customer. Talking about writing, so where do you go to, if someone does want to become a good writer, they're 38 years old, they don't write well, are they lost forever? Is there um, a writing course that they can take? Um, how do you go about acquiring a skill long after you're out of college or school? You're certainly not lost forever. Rabbi Akiva was 40 years old when he started to learn Torah, right? And he became the Gadol Hador. So you're never too old to learn anything new. So, so that for sure should never enter your mind. Age is not a factor. But persistence is important. So the first thing is you find some kind of course, 
that could be online, in person, whatever, where they're going to teach you how to write and then grade you, critique you on your writing because you do need to have that human feedback so you understand what you're doing well and poorly and you have to practice. A writing course doesn't work like you sit through a two-hour thing, you write one or two sentences and you go, good, I'm done. That is not how knowledge is acquired. The way knowledge is acquired is through Chazara. Everything is practice. So if you want to learn how to be a good writer, write something every day or more than once a day. Start writing emails to everybody you know and then at the bottom write to them, did I express myself clearly to you? And let them let people write you back and tell you, mm, to tell you the truth, I was a little confused at the beginning. Or, yes, thank you, that was very clear. And that's going to let you see which sentences work well and which are constructed properly, and people will help you. But a little bit of education in that regard, and then a lot of Hazara is the, is the key. Someone who wants to switch careers in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, how do you guide them? What advice do you give to them? So before I tell people what they should do, I try to understand what they like and what they don't like. Um, most people have one or two things that they've always wanted to do, but they just never had the chance or they weren't willing to give it a shot when they were younger. And I mean, I can tell you, my father wanted to be a professional ball player, and he still hasn't become one, and he's 86. Don't give up. Um, but, and so, so maybe that's not going to happen, but there's no reason why, if that was your thing, and it's not like I'm recommending it, but if that was your thing, you could get a job working for the Mets or the Yankees. There's or, actually an Orthodox Jewish baseball player that's uh, I, being drafted I, I, now. I, I, I just, that's as a player, but I mean, you can work in the office. I met, I met a, a nice Jewish guy. He does uh, player representation. He helps the players negotiate their contracts. He doesn't really have any background other than he has a, a good head and he looks at the contracts and decides what he thinks will be fair for mm -hmm. his players that he's representing. I met another guy. He does PR for Madison Square Garden and uh, he helps figure out ways to publicize Madison Square Garden and to make the public love Madison Square Garden and want to attend events there and all that. And uh, that's a second career for him. So there's, um, you can always first look to something that maybe you're going to love. And that, that's a good place to start. Second place I like to ask is, so let's figure out what you're good at. And then you'll find that someone is really good at these three or four things, and they've never really tried to exploit those for a career before. Or maybe they were aspects of their earlier career, but not part of a new one. Um, today also, as you mentioned before, there's so many remote work opportunities. There are also kind of short-term gig-type opportunities. Uh, jobs. There's, everyone's heard of the gig economy, mm -hmm. but that works for so many sets of skills. Let's say that you are really good at, uh, let's, say, let's say you're a house painter. Okay, So we know a house painter doesn't paint the same house every day. Every day they're painting a different house, right? So they go from one to the other. They are like a gig worker, right? But you could be a gig worker as an accountant, as a customer service person, as a business analyst, as a graphics designer, as an advertiser. Everything needs some kind of input, uh, but maybe not as a full-time role. You can reinvent yourself as a consultant. I'm, I'm a consultant, and, and that's by choice. I started off in consulting. I worked many years in industry. I went back to consulting. But for other people, let's say they've... Uh, 
they've, they're 50 years old and they've exited an industry that they were in their whole life and now they're wondering what to do, that industry more than likely needs consultants. It needs a consultant, a contractor, a part-time something maybe to help three or four companies that are in that industry and mm-hmm. help them achieve something that you already now have a lifetime of expertise in. So there's an opportunity right there. There also may be other industries which can leverage those same sets of skills. Maybe you were in finance. Healthcare industry is a great place to transition. With a little bit of knowledge of how the healthcare industry works, you can relearn a few skills and make all of your knowledge that you've acquired over your career work in that industry too. I would imagine you have to start slow because if you're 47 years old, you have tuitions to pay, you can't just drop everything one day and transition to a different industry. You got to pay your bills. So these gigs, right? The gig economy that you're referring to allow someone to test the waters, right? They can say, hey, I do like this. I am good at this. I can actually try my my uh, my chances in this industry, and it could work. If it doesn't, I'm right back. You're not suggesting they give it all up, what their current job is, to then transition to something they like or they're good to at. To tell you the truth, I didn't have in my head someone who's currently working in mind when I was speaking to you. I okay. know people who are in their late 30s, in their 40s or 50s, who are let go from a job that they've held uh-huh. for a very long time. I was thinking more of those people. Okay. Because those people now, you're not saying, why don't you go test the waters? You're saying, hey, I, I need to find something to, to bring in Parnassa. Right. Um, for sure, if you're already employed, you don't just say, well, I'm quitting. I'm going to see how it works at being a fisherman. Right. That, that, that makes no sense, right? You want to for sure test the waters a little bit and see if it's going to be something that's going to work out for you. I definitely feel that way. I was more referring to the people who, for whatever reason, maybe their industry just ends. It used to be that uh, there were so many companies that did printing. But you know now, because so many things are online, printers, most of them have gone out of business. There used Mm -hmm. to be hundreds and thousands of printing companies all in the New York metro area. And now, I mean, there's really, there's a handful. And everyone who was in that industry had to figure out what they were going to do. So some people did transition to digital media or some remained in kind of digital printing and all that. But most others moved out of that industry and they found other industries. There used to be so many people working on Wall Street in the back office. Today, there are not. All of those people had a transition to other industries. So I'm really talking about in today's economy, it's very possible that you find that you are unfortunately in your 40s or 50s, and all of a sudden now you've been told by your employer that your career at this place is over, and you've been there for 20 years, and you don't know what you're going to do next. Mm -hmm. But don't give up hope. You have acquired tremendous skills over those years, and those skills can be repurposed, and then perhaps with a little bit of knowledge about another industry, you can get another job and and use many of the skills that you've acquired over the years to benefit another industry. So great. You spoke earlier about a PR professional at Madison Square Garden. And the first question that comes to my mind is, how do you get a job there? And then it, it comes to mind where I worked a few years at CNBC and people always came over to me and said, how, do you, how did you get a job there? And it was through networking. I opened up a Twitter account. I was a sports blogger. 
And there was this reporter who had a Twitter account, and he would run these polls. And it was before Twitter gave users the ability to count up the votes. And I would say, hey, I'll count up your votes. And then he did another poll, and then he messaged me privately one day, and he says, hey, can you count the votes? I said, yeah, sure. I was driving upstate. I had to pull over. My wife's like, yeah, sure. And then he called me. He's like, hey, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I, you know, help some businesses with social media. And he's like, maybe you can help me with social media. I'm getting my own show. And I joined part-time and then I transitioned to a full-time role. His name is Darren Rovell. He's uh, super popular, millions of followers. Um, And that only came because I used a digital platform to network. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I figured if I dabble and learn, who knows where it can lead. And his wife once got on the phone with me and she says, why are you wasting your time here? You're just counting his votes. You're helping him with social media. You're not getting paid for it. He's not paying you. I said, I know, but I'm actually rubbing elbows with a really, really successful individual. I'm learning. Even if it doesn't go anywhere, this is cool. This is, I'm learning. This is, no one No one really gets to network like this. And it actually transitioned. And when I got the job, he pulls me over to the side. He's like, call my wife. Tell her you got the job. I called her. <laughs> she was laughing. She's like, okay, it panned out. But it did take eight to nine months. So networking is super valuable right? LinkedIn, especially, you can message anyone or get your message in front of them. But if you don't, you're missing out on a really prime opportunity that didn't exist 15 plus years ago. Absolutely. LinkedIn is a fantastic way to meet anybody. And I really mean just about anybody. All you have to have, we're going to go back to that writing skill. You know, you have to know how to string a few sentences together And you have to be able to give some sort of compelling message that's going to make the other person want to write back to you. And so, I mean, I'll give you an example of how I met this PR person. Mm -hmm. This is really how I I met him. Um, I volunteer time also helping people in the U.S. military to transition to a civilian life and get a job. And I was helping a guy who was uh, stationed in Italy... And he said to me, he wants to get into the PR industry, and he doesn't know anyone, and he's sitting in Italy, and there's just no way. And I said, no way? I said, watch this. Dare me right now to connect you with someone in PR. And he says, okay, I dare you. So I brought up on our Zoom session that we were doing together. He was in Italy. I was in New York. And I bring up LinkedIn, and I type in public relations, whatever, and this guy comes up, Madison Square Garden, and he was among several that I wrote to. And I wrote, hi, you don't know me, but I'm helping a friend of mine who's in Italy. He's in the U.S. military, and he would love to have a mentor who's already working in PR to give him advice on how to get into the industry. Would you be willing to help? And that's all I wrote. Seriously, while we were online... Five, six minutes later, he writes back, I would love to help any member of the United States military. Please introduce me. So all of a sudden now, I met this guy. He's a super nice guy. And uh, and he's helping someone in Italy transition to that industry and becoming a mentor for that person. You can do that too. You write a few nice words. You say, I've always been interested in whatever, or I really admire the work you do, or I'm so interested in your industry. Would you be willing to give me a few minutes of your time and give me some advice about how I might meet people in this industry, get into this industry, find a job in this industry? You'll see that 
people are very generous with their time. For sure, Jews are very generous with their time and, and effort for other people. And you'll also see Americans, by and large, are very, very generous with their time. They're eager to help. They love the opportunity to share something of themselves. People love giving back just a little bit. That's such an easy way for them to give back. They don't have to offer you a job, and that's not your goal in that conversation. Your goal is to pick up a mentor, an advisor, a connection, your network, someone who can help you learn a little bit more about that industry, maybe navigate it a little bit better, and find a job in it. And it's really easy to do. It's a great way to meet new people, um, and it's a great way to find a, a career. It's interesting that you mentioned military because I've seen that people in the military, they, they follow a regimen. So people are all in business are always looking for responsible people. The skills or the know-how can be taught later on, which is why I saw during the pandemic school teachers, I was listening to this podcast, this um, manager or he, a business owner of self-storage warehouses needed people that knew how to write well, that knew how to follow a schedule, that knew how to operate some sort of operation, they were hiring school teachers to manage their business because school teachers maybe didn't have as much work, they were out of the job, they had more time, and they said they have all the skills they need to run my business. And they were looking around and, and they said they've been super successful in hiring these people that have never had any warehouse management experience but they knew how to write. They knew how to how to handle tasks. They knew how to do it efficiently. They were responsible. So there was this real crossover that came into effect here. So when you talk military, I can sure. think that Mil the military teachers and and both the U.S. military and the Israeli military are both outstanding military organizations. Um, they teach process. They teach you usually two things. First of all. There's a good way of getting something done, and here's the process. And the second thing is, and especially in the Israeli military, they teach a lot of thinking out of the box. In the U.S., you see that in the more specialized forces, but in the Israeli military, you see that all over the place. But people learn both how to follow a process, so how to get something done, and also then how to troubleshoot and how to solve a problem when it appears. You see that in, in, in the U.S. military, when there were so many uh, improvised uh, explosive devices that were harming our troops in the early days of uh, the Afghanistan conflict, troops devised their own solutions. They were taking just sheet metal and they were putting it at the bottom of their vehicles. And they would layer it up a few layers and they realized after that that these devices couldn't penetrate the bottom of their vehicles any longer and they couldn't get hurt. So that's improvisation. They then requested out of the big bureaucracy of the military, and of course it took them months and months and months to get it through the paperwork, to actually make this a standard way of constructing these vehicles so they wouldn't be susceptible to these explosions. But the troops on the ground, they improvise. But also, they know how to follow a process, just like you said. Process is very important in business, right? A recurring way of doing things. So you always need a healthy mixture of thinking out of the box, but then also like, I know that Monday is payroll day and we're gonna get payroll done. And Tuesday is sales day and I'm going to call new customers. And you have to think like that, that makes you successful. If you're doing a job search, I know many people at home, especially if they've been searching for a job for a long time, 
they tend to feel very down on themselves and all that, one of your greatest, greatest tools to keep you from feeling that way is to create a process for yourself. Every day, get on LinkedIn and meet five or six or 10 new people. Take the time to write those sentences and meet new people. Reach out to a Chesed organization and find new people to connect with, people who might be in your chosen field. Ask people that you know for introductions to other people. Every day, do that. You don't have to do that eight hours a day, but certainly you can do that an hour or two a day. Never give up. If you keep working at it, you will. You will see success. That's how Hishtadlis works. You have to put in your effort. Hashem will help you, but you have to put in that time. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Ned Schoenfeld, for joining us. Looking forward to many more conversations together. Thanks so much for having me. Pretty amazing episode, right? If you have questions for Ned, share them. Info at livingsmarterjewish.org. If you have guest ideas, hit our website up, livinglachaim.com. You can submit a guest, a lot of suggestions. Uh, next week, I'm super, super excited. We have an episode solely focused on tuition. A lot of people have written in. We did it. We have a WhatsApp number. You can hit us up now. Jot this number down, 914 222 5513. That number again, 914-222-5513. That's the official Living Lachaim WhatsApp number. You'll be able to reach my brother Yaakov. He sits on it all day waiting for your message. Uh, but if you have guest ideas, you can submit them there. Topics, things you want to hear, things you hate about, um, finances, things you love about being a Jew, share them. Um, Yaakov is going to be working on other podcast networks, which I'm super excited to hear about. He told me a little bit of inside information, but it's too soon to reveal. Right, Yaakov? Yes. Okay. But next week's episode, buckle up, tuition. Why is tuition so expensive? Until next time, keep your money kosher. This podcast has been hosted by my brother, Eli Langer, produced by me, Yaakov Langer, and brought to you by Living L'Chaim. To check out other podcasts from Living L'Chaim, go to livinglechaim.com. Check out our YouTube channel. Check up Living L'Chaim on podcasts and do your thing. Until next time, enjoy life. Living L'Chaim.